Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life, do not like the way they feel, or are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health care are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. We'll be talking to Elizabeth Gandy, a woman's health nurse practitioner at the Ohio State Medical Center. She's an Ishwish Fellow and an ASEC Certified Sexual Health Counselor. We'll be discussing the North American Menopause Society position statement on the treatment of genital urinary syndrome of menopause. Please enjoy this podcast. Today we have with us Liz Gandy from the Ohio State University. And we're very excited because we've we've talked a lot about sexual pain in the last three podcasts. And we've referred to the genital urinary syndrome of menopause. And today it's it's such a big topic. I, I asked Liz to just let's just talk about this particular issue and sexual pain. So thank you, Liz, for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yes, thank you, Dr. Gibbs. I'm so glad to be here today. And let's let's kick off our conversation with, if you would, tell me about or define a genital urinary syndrome of menopause, or we'll just call it GSM, and its prevalence. Yeah, so GSM, what we now refer to, we used to call vulval vaginal atrophy or atrophic vaginitis. But we thought that the, those terms were kind of off-putting for a woman. A woman doesn't really want her vulva to be referred to as, as atrophied. And it doesn't really encompass the whole nature of, of this problem. So, so the terminology that we use now to describe this is a genitourinary syndrome of menopause, because though we know that it doesn't just affect the vulva and vagina, but it can also affect the urinary system as well. The, the prevalence, this is a problem that affects many women and unfortunately is, is vastly under-recognized, under-treated isn't brought up by both patients and providers. So it's really important to talk about. And data shows anywhere from 27 to 84% of women are affected by this. A lot of what I read says more than 50% of postmenopausal women or vulva owners will experience genital urinary syndrome of menopause. This is something that can impair health, affect sexual function, affects quality of life. So it's really important that we discuss this and uh, talk about it with our patients. That's a, and it's a lot of women. I, I always tell our residents that menopause is something that every woman gets to if she lives old enough. I mean, not all people will have babies, not all people will have heart attacks, but every woman will go through menopause if they live long enough. So that it, it is a huge problem. You know, you got all these people. Tell us about the impact 
on one's sexual health because of this? You know, we think often think about vaginal dryness of causing pain and dryness, but it can extend further than that, affecting arousal, ability to have orgasm. 80% of women will say that this can have a negative impact on their lives. It affects intimacy. Women feel less sexual. They, they report feeling older, you know, having negative consequences on their relationship and marriage, self-esteem, quality of life, and can even affect sleep and, and just general life enjoyment. It doesn't sound like anything that people are would be excited about. What are the changes in the anatomy? What, what's going on that causes these issues? And, and what do you see when you do an exam? GSM is it's postmenopausal related to decline in estrogen and changes that occur with menopause. Usually woman a woman goes through menopause, average age of 50 to 52 in the U.S., that's when our vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, fatigue, you know, trouble sleeping, things like that, that we think about being associated with menopause. Usually when you go through menopause, those symptoms do eventually get better. And it's the vaginal dryness that can progressively worsen the further away we get from menopause. So women can experience these symptoms perimenopausal or even postmenopausal. I think it's important to note that it's not just naturally menopausal women that we want to think about, but you also want to think about other women in low estrogen states, such as those that have like a premature ovarian insufficiency, a woman experiencing surgical menopause, someone who has a hypothalamic amenorrhea, when women are postpartum or breastfeeding, taking other medications such as birth control pills, cancer treatments like aromatase inhibitors, tamoxifen, using GnRH agonists, you know, all kinds of women in that low estrogen state. On exam, what you can see is you can get like a resorption of those labia minora. They get smaller or thinner. You can see like a clitoral phimosis. So that hood that covers the clitoris can get, you know, smaller or kind of more stuck where you can't pull it back and see that clitoris. You can get agglutination. The tissue might look kind of friable or hypopigmented. You might see some petechiae in the vagina. You may or may not see changes to the urethra, like a caruncle or um, some prolapse of the urethra. The vaginal rugae, the ridges in the vagina might start to go away. Some women can get a narrowing or a, a stenosis of the opening of the vagina or the introitus, and even a shortening of the vagina. And women that have really significant genital urinary syndrome or menopause can even start to get like a yellow or brown discharge that you might see on exam. So when you have women come in and they've gone through menopause, you know, how do you present this at, to see if these changes are bothering them and what would you offer them? Yeah. So this is something that should be asked to all women who are postmenopausal or perimenopausal as part of a review of systems. And a lot of times it can be really helpful to normalize things for women. So, you know, say something like, you know, it's not uncommon for women to experience some dryness in the genitals or have some discomfort with sex. Are these any symptoms that you've experienced? So just kind of normalizing it for them first. I think it's important as many of three-fourths of women with GSM have not discussed it with their healthcare provider because they think it's just a natural part of aging and that, you know, there may or may not be treatments available. And, and so it's not, they don't really discuss it. So I think it's important to reassure women that while this is something that can happen and is normal, we have treatments for, it, and it's not something that you have to live with it and, and suffer with. You know, we've run all run into those women that don't even know that it's related to menopause, which mm -hmm. is distressing. People would say, 
what can I do about it? So depending on what the woman is experiencing, for women with mild symptoms, you know, maybe they're experiencing some discomfort with intercourse or they've had some bleeding with intercourse, you could recommend a lubricant uh, to be used with intercourse. There's water-based, silicone, oil-based, lots of different types of lubricants. I don't want to go into it too much, but I'm sure most people know that if you're using condoms or barriers, you don't want to use an oil-based lubricant with it because it can break it down. Another over-the-counter option that a woman with mild symptoms could consider would be a vaginal moisturizer. So this is something that is non-hormonal. It's put into the vagina every three days or a couple times a week. The, the moisturizer is a little bit more mucoadhesive than the lubricant. So I always think L is for your lovemaking and the M is for your maintenance. Your moisturizer is your maintenance. So that's what you're going to use regularly to help maintain the moisture. And there's lots of products you can get over the counter, Luvina, Replens, some newer products that are getting attention are the hyaluronic acid. There's a couple online companies that will set up a mail order for those like Reverie from a company called Bonafide, or there's a product called HaloGYN that's a hyaluronic acid. You know, one thing that comes up when we talk about lubricants and moisturizers is the osmolarity of those. And there is some concern with those. There's a nice article from the World Health Organization that talks about that, if you would want to explore that any further. And some people get concerned about irritation from lubricants or, or things like that. You know, if anybody has concerns, they could do a small patch test to make sure that they don't get irritation from that. But really those products are going to be whatever works best for the patient is going to be, you know, the one that they'll, they'll utilize. In regards to prescription options, we have a, a lot of options available. Again, the best product is going to be the one that the patient uses. They are very similar in efficacy. So, you know, one's not necessarily better than the other. The prescription options are hormone. And I think it's really important to reassure people that the estrogens that we use in the vagina are really low dose. It's a more local treatment. The low dose local options stay within levels of a postmenopausal range and are really not thought to increase risks for breast cancer, endometrial cancer, cardiovascular disease, like we think about with the systemic hormone therapy. When I'm prescribing the vaginal hormone therapy, I like to reassure my patients about this because what's going to happen is they're going to go home and they're going to read the package and, and the package is going to tell them that there's risks for breast cancer, endometrial cancer, cardiovascular disease. That packaging really comes from the systemic hormone therapies and doesn't apply to the local low-dose vaginal estrogens. And so it's really important to reassure patients about this because if you don't have a conversation, they're going to go home and they're going to read that package and they're just going to be terrified and they're not going to want to use what you've prescribed to them. Well, why would anybody put on a package label that there's a problem with something, but that there isn't, you know, would you explain that, you know, because it's just uh, mystifying to, to many people. <laughs> Yeah, I'll do my best. My understanding is that, like I said, that black box warning has come from the systemic hormones. So they kind of just tacked on the warnings, which those have limitations in them themselves. That's a conversation bigger than this GSM conversation, but those warnings come from the systemic hormones. The hormones that we use to treat GSM are local low-dose vaginal treatments. So you know, we have data showing that they don't carry those same risks as the systemic hormone. So there have been many who have advocated that, you know, the FDA changed that labeling, but it hasn't happened yet. So we'd really love to go through just a short explanation as to all the different estrogen products that are out there, because, you know, you can insert things, there's creams, there's pills. 
Could, could you give us just a, a little outline as to what's available? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of vaginal tablets that are available. The vaginal tablets are a small tablet or like application that you put into the vagina that re- releases a low dose of estrogen. Usually you start off using that daily for two weeks and then you'll use it twice weekly for maintenance. The next option would be a vaginal estrogen ring. That is a ring that goes into the vagina. It stays there for three months. It's taken out and then replaced in three months by the patient. When prescribing the ring, you just want to be cautious that you're prescribing estrogen. There's another ring that's called FemRing that is systemic doses of hormone therapy used to treat vasomotor symptoms. So you want to make sure that you're prescribing estrogen, which is the local low-dose vaginal estrogen. The nice thing about the ring is a patient that might have trouble using a cream or a tablet or something like, you know, patient with arthritis or... Maybe they have uh, just limitations in their movement or ability to apply medications vaginally. The ring is nice because it's in place and just needs to be changed every three months. The next product that's available is a vaginal estrogen cream. There's two different creams. There's Premarin and Estrace, which is estradiol. Premarin is conjugated equine estrogen. I do usually like to warn my patients that conjugated equine estrogen is made from horse urine. Some people have some ethical concerns about that. So you just want to give them a heads up. I have heard patients come back to their providers being upset that they weren't warned about that. So you just want to give, might want to give them a heads up about that. But those again are oftentimes used daily for two weeks and then twice weekly for maintenance. Another option is a vaginal DHEA called Intrarosa or Prasterone. The vaginal DHEA is an insert that's applied into the vagina every night at bedtime. DHEA is a hormone precursor that converts into estrogen and testosterone locally in the tissue. In the vulva and vestibule and vagina and urogenital tract, we don't just have estrogen receptors, but also androgen receptors. So that's a nice product because it can also provide the stimulating the androgen receptors as well. The final option, which isn't used vaginally, is called Ospina. This is the only FDA-approved oral option for treating GSM. This is an estrogen agonist antagonist that can be used to treat GSM. Again, it's oral. It can have a side effect of hot flashes. The precautions are going to be similar to other estrogens and estrogen agonist antagonist products with risks for endometrial cancer and cardiovascular disease. The labeling says it shouldn't be used in known or suspected breast cancer, but there is some preclinical data showing that it can have anti-estrogenic activity at the breast. So in patients with known or suspected breast cancer, anytime you're prescribing hormones, you maybe want to include their oncologist and have a discussion about that. We talked about the safety of the vaginal estrogen. And is there anybody that, that really you wouldn't want to, to uh, give it to? Any, anybody that it's contraindicated in? Yeah, I mean, I mean, just pretty safe as you've outlined, but mm-hmm. who are those people? It's like, no, I don't think we better. Yeah. So the vast majority of women are going to be candidates for using the local low-dose vaginal estrogens. The people you would want to not use this with would be anybody who has undiagnosed vaginal bleeding. Of course, we want to work that up and figure out what's going on there before you would want to give them um, hormones. The other one is women with hormone-dependent cancers. Again, there's things that you want to consider, such as the type of cancer, any cancer treatments that they're getting, you know, how long ago they had their cancer, you know, there's just various things to consider. And again, um, it's always a good idea to have a conversation with the oncologist if there's any question. So you've outlined this very well for us. And so patient comes in and she's just having all this issue and really wants a treatment. And she's very willing to talk 
about anything, but you know, she may have her concerns about estrogen. Could you uh, give me a, a sampling of, you know, a discussion, you know, you're not going to just write the script and hand it to her. How do you lead into encouraging women to use this product? You know, like I said, you want to normalize this for women and ask them, you know, in the context of this is something that many women experience. Is this something that you've experienced? And most of the time when women are having these symptoms, they want to seek treatment. So they want to, you know, they want a treatment. They want something that's going to help. And so just providing them the reassurance that, that this is something that's very common. It is pretty easily treatable and that these medications do help. And again, just having that conversation that this is different than the systemic hormones. These are really low, more local, low dose vaginal preparations that we're using and that there is, you know, data showing that they're safe to use and that their, their symptoms will get better. And it hopefully can improve, you know, whatever they're experiencing, be it, you know, painful sex, bleeding with sex, itching, irritation. You know, one thing that we haven't mentioned that I would like to just mention is the patients with reoccurrent urinary tract infections giving them some vaginal estrogen or treating their, their GSM, even the oral osphena can be helpful for that too. So you could even save a woman's life by, by treating her GSM, not just improve her quality of life or, or sex life. And, and considering that it's not just a sexual symptom, but women can get irritation. And like we said, urinary symptoms, recurrent urinary tract infections and things like that. Do you find you talk people into using it, they get a great result do you find anybody still coming back and, and struggling with getting back to their sexual life and, and satisfaction, even though the tissues are, are doing well, they may be struggling? Do you, do you find, mm -hmm. ever find that? What do you do about that? So when you're evaluating for GSM, it is really important to do a good exam and look at the tissues because there can be other causes for sexual pain or itching or irritation, such as vaginal infections. Some women could have something like a lichen planus or lichen sclerosis. So it is really important to look at the tissue and, and do an exam. You know, I think a lot of the, the exams that we're taught in school, we, we get real excited about learning how to use that speculum and we kind of forget to stop and, and do a good vulvar exam. So I think that's one thing that's really important. And when I, you know, teach students and other people, I really encourage them to, to stop and take a look at the vulva, look at the labia, look at the vestibule you know, look at the clitoris. Can you retract that um, clitoral hood? Are there any lesions? Is there, there evidence of anything else going on? And if so, is it something that needs biopsied? You also want to think about ruling out vaginal infections. You know, are they having any symptoms of itching, burning, discharge, odor, things like that? If you're lucky enough to have microscopy in your office, um, you could utilize that. In GSM, the, the pH will often be elevated and there will be more parabasal cells and more inflammatory cells that you'll see. Um, so you want to rule out other infections, but sometimes can, you know, mimic other things like disquamative inflammatory vaginitis and other vulvar and vaginal disorders. So you want to make sure you've ruled everything out. The other thing to consider is that people in general, when you've experienced pain, your body can have a physiological response to experiencing that again. And so if sex has been painful for you, it's not uncommon for those muscles to tense up or tighten up. And like we talked about earlier, sometimes the opening of the vagina can start to narrow with menopause. And so another thing that we might want to think about with these patients is considering a referral for pelvic floor physical therapy. So not just assessing the vulva and the vagina, but also considering the pelvic floor muscles and, you know, assessing for, is there any narrowing of the introitus um, or evidence of pelvic floor dysfunction? That was a very wonderful, complete discussion. What do you think about 
pearls, anything, you know, you've done this so often and, and for so long now, what, what are the things that you would like to tell a learner or somebody that's interested in it, that, that wants to get better at it? What would you, what would you tell them? You know, I think the biggest thing is just recognizing the number of women affected and, you know, bringing it up with your patients. Like I said, including it in your review of systems for all peri and postmenopausal women, you know, recognizing the impact that it has, the number of women affect, that are affected, it really should be something that, you know, all primary care providers and gynecologists are, are treating. I don't think this is something that needs to be reserved for menopause experts or anything like that. You know, it treats not just sexual symptoms, but like we talked about, can treat urinary symptoms, can prevent reoccurring urinary tract infections. You know, so those patients, as opposed to loading them up on antibiotics, we can really easily treat them with a, a local low dose, very safe vaginal estrogen that's really going to help them. So I, I think just doing it and, and not being afraid of it, hormones really have a negative stigma to them but they're very safe for the vast majority of women. So just incorporating it into your practice and doing it. We want to thank you for your time today for this wonderful discussion for our learners regarding GSM. And thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. For a copy of the position statement and Elizabeth Gandy's contact information, please go to the show notes. Thank you.